So do you have any experience with unrequited love, Brett? Uh, yeah, I'm sure that I've had like puppy dog love experiences before where I've majorly crushed on someone and I don't, I don't know if they, they liked me back or not, but I was too, I was too shy and, and scared to do anything, you know, I'm not, I'm not like ScarJo. I just can't go picking up people left and right while driving around Ireland or Scotland or whatever. So you've also never, well, I mean, so you do have experience with unrequited love of the crushing kind, but you've never been the obscure object of desire like ScarJo. No one's ever come up to you to tell you they've loved you forever. Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. How would I know? What if someone is pining for me and I don't know? What if they're watching me right now? Well, if someone's pining for you, then the least they could do is listen to your podcast. So if anybody is in unrequited love with either of us, the least you could do is listen to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, the least you can do is write a review where you detail our daily routines and habits. And I want to know be- all about this painful love that you have, but I also want you to raise awareness of this podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, let, let's get, shall we? Let's do it. are Necromancer. Necromancer. My name is Shira, and I'm a fan of romantic comedies. My name is Brett, and I am a fan of horror movies. Together, each week, Brett picks a horror movie, I pick a rom-com, we make each other watch those movies, and then we flip-flop them around into the opposite genre and rewrite them. Turn the horror into a rom-com, and the rom-com into a horror. This week, our theme is movies about unrequited love. Aww. Yeah. Does, what do you think of the theme of unrequited love? Is that a downer for you? Or as a writer, do you find it a rich well to draw from? No, I don't, I don't like this topic. As a person who's gone through you know, like experiences of crushes and and probably liking people who don't like me back and stuff. It's awkward. It's awkward when one person likes someone and they don't like the other person back. And then it's also, I don't know, sometimes it's kind of like, it's just painful. (laughs) It's painful to watch. But don't you think pain is the well from which great rom-coms and horrors are, are drawn from? Ultimately, this is one of the things that I think that our two respective fandoms have in common. They're ultimately about human suffering, whether that's, you know, suffering in terms of trying to create a relationship or just the pure physical and existential suffering that you encounter in a horror movie. No, when I watch a scary movie, I don't really want to be like, like existentially terrified of my own worst fears. I want to like watch Jason with a machete and blood. But isn't that exactly <laughs> what under the skin is about? And you chose that movie for this theme. Yeah, I, I did. I, I do like that movie. I, I think it's very good. <laughs> so you're just a man of contradictions. I don't I know. Am. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because not only am I very experienced with unrequited love, I would consider myself an Olympian. I know how Ooh. to carry a torch. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and so this is, this is something that I feel like, you know, if you're asked to write what you know, um, writing about obsession 
Uh, and that kind of obsession for me just feels really easy. You know, I, I mean, a lot of my uh, <laughs> horror movies have to do with obsessive weirdos. So for right. me, it's not it's not difficult to turn it that way. Uh, also, lately, I've just read a bunch of really satisfying romances that feature unrequited love as a theme. I just I don't know. I I enjoy watching people pine. Uh, I think that it can can be very sweet, and sometimes it can be cinematic. Yeah, true. I think it's a lot easier for me now because I have Sonia, but, like, I didn't really date a lot. <laughs> but I could, like, I could definitely, as someone who is, like, introverted and creative and likes writing and, and writing characters and sort of observing people without but also having anxiety of like actually interacting with people. I could definitely have entire crushes in my head where it's like, you know, you can get lost in the fantasy of like, what would it be like to be with this person or, you know, but then you, you get, you fall into the trap of like, do you really like the person or do you like the idea of the person? Unrequited love. I feel like it's often right. Like, uh, like, it's the idea of the person that you want to be with, not the actual person, maybe. Well, right. And, and the, the, but that's why the turning point in both cases, whether it's a serious movie or a comedy, is where the idea crosses the bridge into reality. Ultimately, there right. has to be some kind of turning point but I do think that you're correct in as unrequited love as the theme has a lot to do with potential, with the thinking about, with the fantasizing over the actual completion uh, of, of the idea in reality. Once you hit that point, it kind of deflates because it's really just like this balloon that fills up and up with air all the air from the unrequited love until, you know, it just, it has to pop. The, the idea has to puncture. Yeah, I agree. Um, go and ahead. Both, oh, I was just going to say both movies have visual motif motifs of things breaking or being broken. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I, I felt like I was going to say something on um, based on what you said, but I forgot. That's okay. It'll come to us. So, what movie do you want to start with? Uh, well, this is your your theme. You're the one who kind of picked this one, so I'll let you decide. I honestly could go either way. I think both of them make for interesting conversations, and I I don't know. Both of them are, are kind of heavy. <laughs> Well, yeah, unrequited love is very angsty, but yeah. I don't think that angst should be a reason to shy away from a subject matter. I feel like it, it takes a good artist to take something this angsty and make it interesting. Uh, so how about we start with the apartment, since I think the apartment is generally more angsty. Okay. Uh, I can definitely start with the apartment. Um, so you're the one who suggested the apartment. You're the one who suggested unrequited love. Is there anything specific like going on right now that, that you love that you're not feeling back or? No, I, I I'll, I'll make this very clear. I feel very fulfilled in my current relationship. I, I have no unrequited love to resolve at the moment. I've been in that situation before and I've learned a lot from it. And then I've read some titillating stories lately uh, that I'll, I'll mention in love bites whenever we get, whenever we get there. Um, but I chose this movie because one of my favorite directors ever and the one who I would think, okay, this is the kind of director I'd want to be like is uh billy wilder i love billy wilder's movies 
I think that he writes uh, with the, his writing partner. You know, he's not a one-man team either. Uh, he's directed and, and written some really great romantic comedies. The man knew his way around a noir movie too. He did Double Indemnity. So not only could he write great rom-coms that were filled with, you know, humor and wit, uh, but he could turn a serious movie too. So he has that range. Uh, and then I always felt like Billy Wilder movies had great dialogue. And you always talk about how a romantic com- comedy doesn't have to be cinematic, but there are just these little flourishes and touches that Billy Wilder does, or when he just lets actors just be in a space like, he just lets Jack Lemon do his thing. Uh, he just, I don't, I don't know. I think he has a really great eye and idea for how a movie should look, sound, feel, how a plot should be. Uh, and I feel like The Apartment is part of a pair of Billy Wilder movies about unrequited love. Uh, the other one I feel like I could have chosen is one of my favorites, uh, Sabrina, but I don't know. I feel like Sabrina might be too manic pixie dream girl for you. I don't know if you're ready for another Audrey Hepburn movie since I already know how you felt about a uh, funny face. Uh, yeah. So well, I wasn't, <laughs> I mean, that was I a gave, musical. Yeah. I gave funny face a fair shot. I definitely went into that movie knowing it wasn't my kind of movie. And like for the first half of that movie i was like all right i i can i can try and then for the last half i was like ah, this just isn't for me <laughs> i i love sabrina and coincidentally sabrina also features a woman who tries to commit suicide when she can't be with the guy she wants to be with uh, which you know it billy wilder can throw that into a movie and and make it make it work uh, but I thought that the apartment might be more appealing to you uh, than Sabrina. But uh, I, I, had I, I, never thought, seen. I thought a Billy Wilder movie would be a fun thing to do. Yeah. Well, yeah. Billy Wilder is definitely one of the greats. <laughs> uh, he makes good movies. The guy knows how to make a movie. Um, I'd never se- I've never seen Sabrina and I've only seen this movie once before. So uh, I definitely have to catch up on my Billy Wilder. That's for sure. I've, I haven't seen too much, but every movie I've seen of his is incredibly well done. <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's a sophisticated European immigrant. Uh, I, he brings all of that German expressionist style and panache to a Hollywood movie. That's really where it comes from uh and it it totally works so how about you tell us the story of the apartment well if i'm gonna tell you the story about the apartment i gotta tell you the story about cc buddy boy baxter who buddy boy buddy boy uh who is a lonely office drudge at a national insurance corporation in new york city which we, we just covered a movie about an insurance guy didn't we? Um, is is the is George Clooney an insurance? No, he's oh, he no. fires people. Yeah, uh, but I feel like I I because I I I compared the movie to Pokemon Detective Pikachu because that's like also a common. Oh, it was uh, seeking a friend for the end of the world. He's an insurance guy. Oh, he he's an insurance guy too. I wonder if yeah. that was uh that was meant to be a, a nod to CC Baxter cuz uh Dodge is a Baxter type for sure. Yeah, I think it's a common kind of like I'm the I'm the risk calculator, not the risk taker. Um, right, right. It's a very formulaic thing, but I, it, I like that the name of the company is called Consolidated Life. <laughs> it feels cheeky. Yeah. Uh, and so in order to climb this corporate ladder, Bud allows four company managers to take turns borrowing his Upper West Side apartment for their various extramarital liaisons, uh, which attract the attention of the neighbors. And uh, I like I cannot 
have enough glowing comments about the neighbors in this movie. They are so great. Um, but they're the four good men, Jews. Yeah, they're they're real menches. Uh, they're following their advice. <laughs> so the four managers do write glowing reports about Bud, who hopes for a promotion from the personnel director, uh, Mr. Sheldrake. Sheldrake does promote Bud, but he does know why uh, his his managers are so enthusiastic about Bud. And I love how he kind of implies to Bud. He's like, hey, listen, you're a smart guy. He's like, it says here in your, your file, like you're creative, you're intuitive, you pick up on things quickly. He's like, eh, eh. And Buddy Boy right. catches on. Uh, Shell Drake is essentially saying, hey, I want your apartment. I want the same hookup. Uh, and so in exchange for the key for the night to Buddy Boy's apartment, Shell Drake gives Baxter two tickets to the music man. Now, here's where things get interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do tell. <laughs> Bud has a little crush on Fran Kubelik, who is an elevator operator, an elevator girl. Uh, and he who asked... Knew you needed people to push buttons on an elevator back in the day. I know, right? It was like too, too complex. Too complicated. I'm, but I don't know. I worked at Southwest Airlines, and, you know, they have, like, those ATM machines for, like, checking right. in your tickets. Those are so easy and intuitive, but... People people really resisted even trying to touch one for a long time. Uh, so I get it. You know, it's like, oh, buttons. I don't know buttons. <laughs> what is this contraption that moves me up and down? Um, so Fran is super cute, super awesome, super smart, super funny. Bud has his eye on her and invites her to the music man, and she accepts. However, she has to go meet someone for a drink first before she can meet Baxter at the musical. And who is she meeting for that drink? Who's she meeting, Brett? She's meeting Mr. Sheldrake. That's right. The boss <laughs> of the company, who's married and who's having an affair with Fran and has uh, essentially he's dumped her and and moved on but he's he hasn't quite gotten over her yet and he still wants to hook up so he convinces her to again hook up and it's just so sad but it's so perfect you know what i mean that love triangle it's well it's also a, you get to, you get to watch jack lemon be pathetic which he's really good at uh yeah, he's flawless in this movie. Uh, so later at the company's Christmas party, Sheldrake's secretary, Miss Olson, drunkenly tells Fran that Fran is just one of many employees that Mr. Sheldrake has done this with. And he's got his M.O., right? The certain booth at the certain restaurant with the certain spiel about the divorce and all that stuff. Ring-a-ding-ding. So that's right. Uh, and so... Mr. Sheldrake, though, who is, uh, what's his name? Fred McMurray, right? Uh, yeah, that's the actor. Ah, so smooth. What a great he's, scumbag. He's also in Double Indemnity, where he plays an insurance guy. Yeah, I was going to say, he's basically like, you know, this is the alternative universe, what if? Like, what if that guy didn't go corrupt? What if he just, well, what if he went corrupt, but... In a different way. blue collar. <laughs> <laughs> um... And so, so yeah, we got a real predicament on our hands. Um, Bud, so so this is where <laughs> Bud returns a mirror to Mr. Sheldrake, right? Because mm-hmm. Mr. Sheldrake's date, his his affair, left a mirror inside his apartment. So Bud hands him over the mirror, and the mirror is broken. Uh, and then. He later realizes when Fran comes into his apartment that or his or when office. Fran comes into his office that it's her mirror. And it's such a great, ah, such a great reveal. Um, the look on his face, he's so sad. And the dream has been broken. Yes. She's a person. It, 
with it, flaws. <laughs> the the best way to make someone feel scared or sad about your characters is to make them extremely likable. And Jack Lemon is so freaking likable in this movie that when his heart drops, our heart drops. Uh, and it's like he's sweet. He's the only guy who takes his hat off in the elevator with her right. and he asks her how her day is. He actually listens. Yeah, and she cares about him. Oh, when she pins the flower or puts the flower in his coat and stuff, and she's like, oh, mm-hmm. the, the the promotion couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, and she's just so nice to him. Um, but, okay, so here we go. This is where the movie, this is like halfway into the movie, and this is where, for me, the movie kind of starts to like, Whoa, we took a left turn somewhere here. Uh, Mr. Sheldrake takes Fran back to Baxter's apartment. Mr. Sheldrake ends up leaving before any hanky-panky can can go down because they spend too much time arguing and quarreling because, you know, Fran's still upset about what Miss Olsen said. So Mr. Sheldrake leaves and Fran stuck in... Baxter's apartment decides to take a whole bunch of sleeping pills. Meanwhile, Baxter is actually starting to have a good time at a local bar where he is plastered. And this woman, I love that lady. (laughs) She's great. The woman is also plastered and they are having a great time together. They are two, two, uh, uh, lonely people who just need each other's company. And they are just, they're, they're down to clown for the night. Uh, However, when Baxter takes her back to the apartment, he finds Fran fully clothed in his bed, unconscious, overdose from sleeping pills. Lots of hijinks ensue. Uh, You know, he's got to get his neighbor, Dr. Dreyfus, to come over. Uh, They have to keep the authorities out of the situation. They've got to get the one lady out of the apartment. They've, you know, it's a lot of stuff happening. Uh, But essentially... Baxter ends up nursing Fran back to health over the next couple days. And it just gets really dark and really down. And Fran goes from being like this really upbeat, quirky, funny, sassy lady to just like this really bitter, sour, depressed lady. And it's really sad because Baxter's trying to do everything he can to cheer her up, including get her back together with Mr. Sheldrake, who is clearly the one who is not right for her. Right. But he's, that's what the selfless unrequited loving character always does. They don't select themselves. They never select themselves. I have a tipping point, Shira. <laughs> and this movie crosses it. Uh, I, 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 I can't, this movie crossed your exact, boundary. Yeah. I can't pinpoint the exact moment this movie tips the scales for me, but there's a certain point where I go, all right, Baxter. Okay, buddy boy, you got to wake up and smell the coffee here. <laughs> uh, so Fran's brother-in-law ends up storming his way, being tipped off by the scumbags, the four manager, well, two manager scumbags. Uh, Fran's brother-in-law shows up and he's all riled up. He's rascally. He's ready to go. He's like scrappy dude, just itching for a fight. (laughs) And he storms into the place and uh, he basically not. And and Bud, uh, again, there's that moment where Bud's like, Bud essentially takes all the blame for everything bad that's happened to to Fran. And the brother-in-law punches him, but because Fran kind of gives him a little kiss on the head and says like, you know, you fool, you damn fool, which I'm a huge Sin City fan. And Brittany Murphy saying that in that movie, like it was nice to see that connection here because Brittany Murphy is definitely just channeling uh, Shirley MacLaine in this. Yep. It's, it's, it's just spot on. Uh, but Bud just smiles and he's like, it didn't hurt a bit. He's so happy. He's on cloud nine. Great set of reversals coming up. We're like, Bud is just over the moon. He's going to go up to Mr. Sheldrake and tell him, Hey, I got all the solutions to all your problems. I'm going to take Fran off your hands. And then he goes up to the apartment or up to the office 
And Mr. Sheldrake is like, hey, I got some great news. I got, I'm got. i going to take Fran off your hands. I'm going to be the solution to all your problems. And it's like, what? That's what he was going to say to him. And so um, Mr. Sheldrake's wife has ended up leaving him because Miss Olsen told, him, told her all about the affairs. So now, mm-hmm. <laughs> now Mr. Sheldrake is going to try to make it work with Fran only he's also gonna live it up as a bachelor and so uh at the new year's eve party sheldrake basically tells Fran uh uh what's happened and wait 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 you have to explain baxter's moment where he grows a fucking spine or should i say so yeah there's a great moment where where mr sheldrake is like hey I need the key to the apartment tonight. I'm taking Miss I'm taking Miss Kubalik to the apartment. It's 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 either you give me the key to your apartment or you or or I you give me your job. And so in this great spineless cowardly ultimate like low of lowest of the low moments Baxter reaches into his coat pocket, pulls out the key, kind of tosses it, flicks it onto the desk, and in his his at his most lowest point, in his most utterly defeated moment, he gives in to his boss. He's a total coward, completely spineless. What a fool! What a damn fool! And then Mr. Sheldrake realizes this isn't the key to the apartment. This is the key to the executive washroom. And Buddy Boy tells him to go sit on it. Sit on it, Potsy. Uh, he basically tells him to shove it. He says, I don't need this job. I don't need you. I like apparently. I assume he's got quite a bit of money. And this is 1940, 50-something. So that apartment was $85 a month. <laughs> Oh, I die. I taxi rides were only 70 cents. Um, and so uh, he's basically just going to pack it up, pack it in, move it out. He's just going to go wherever he wants. He's not, he's not the risk calculator anymore. He's now become the risk taker. But as uh, Mr. Sheldrake is in the, the restaurant for New Year's and he's being Mr. Sheldrake, uh, Fran realizes that it's actually... Bud, buddy boy Baxter that she really likes. And so she runs to his apartment, sort of lets herself in, makes herself at home, gets the cards, call back to the card game. You know, uh, they they have this little thing. What about Mr. Sheldrake? Oh, you know, call back to the fruitcake bit, send him a fruitcake every year, basically saying, yep, I'm over him. He's in the past, moving on. And then... uh, uh, one of the great things about these older movies is the last line, the final moment, uh, shut up and deal. A little bit of a classic, I guess. Um, She's just so a, cool. It's a great Shirley moment McLean's to end the cool. movie. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really cool moment to end the movie. It's really nice. They look at each other. They're so happy. They're in love. You can you can feel the, the chemistry and it just feels nice and warm and fuzzy and that's exactly what we needed after like 40 minutes of just downright suicidal depression (laughs) but that's that's what happens people get depressed and suicidal but that's not that's not where (laughs) life ends let me just say like i'm a huge fan of tonal shifts in movies like I think it's a very hard thing to pull off. I think it's crazy thing to try to 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 write as a writer. It's hard to write as a director. It's hard to really envision and get it right. Billy Wilder directs such a fun first half of the movie that when it just like nose dives right at the suicidal pill moment, it just feels a little bit too much. It feels like I, I it feels like I get stuck in the tar just a little bit too much. I need, I need, I need, I need buddy boy to be happy just a little bit longer. The movie ends on his happiness. I need to experience the happiness. But his whole spirit is built on him overcoming this darkness. Buddy boy has a dark center that we can only get to through the suicide because we learn 
after she has the suicide attempt that Baxter has also attempted to commit suicide in the past. But then he has this weird humor. He has this, this tragic comic humor about it, talking about how he couldn't figure out where he wanted to shoot himself. And then a cop puts his head in the car. So he sticks the gun underneath him and shoots himself in the kneecap. So it's, you know, it's completely, it's real dark humor, but I think that it works. And he's the only person who's capable of telling this story. I, I definitely a hundred percent agree with everything you just said. Uh, When he does his, his physical comedy selling of, where and he's he's got his hand in the shape of a gun where he was going to shoot himself just the way that he does it it feels really dark and grim but also jack lemon just pulls it off and makes it feel like yes i was in a dark place but i'm not anymore and he he looks he kind of like yeah, he pulls it off in a way that that is very hard to do. Um, but yeah. that's what makes them so perfect for each other because I think so many people just want to see them as these light and funny and, you know, witty people where really they, they've got loneliness and emotions just like everybody else. I agree. Uh, yeah, as like as I I watched this with my film critic hat on and maybe a little bit of my editor hat on, I thought you know just over two minutes did feel a little bit too long. The the sloggy depression, goopy, uh, tar pit part, depressing part of the movie felt just a tiny bit too long. But yeah, each, I can each see that. scene was very well constructed, and even though I was thinking. Even even though I'm uncomfortable right now, I did think that the movie earned every moment, and that the movie the movie walked the line very well. Um, I feel like it, even though the the sort of suicide and recovery scene seemed to drag. I thought that the way that they showed her decision-making up until that moment was very clever because she finds the pills and then she puts the pills back and then she looks in the mirror and then she looks in her purse and she finds the hundred dollar bill and her face looks that way that she looks when she's just so completely sad and she's been made to feel like nothing by Mr. Sheldrake. Uh, and then she takes the toothbrush out of the water and, and starts to drink. And that and that's it. The decision is made. I just, I feel like the way that that scene proceeds is just, it's very tight, very clever. And then I also think that as far as world building choices, uh, there are lots of really clever touches. I think particularly with the woman at the bar, her whole story about her husband, how he's a jockey and he's in prison in Havana for horse doping. And <laughs> I wrote it down. She says uh, he's a five two, ninety nine pounds, like a little chihuahua. <laughs> a little chihuahua. <laughs> yeah, I like. And- and she says, just wait till I tell my husband about how you treated me. Yeah, I love that part <laughs> when she threatens him <laughs> with like, oh, when my husband finds out you didn't sleep with me, you're going to get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, she was a great character. Uh, this movie has a bunch of of great little characters, little moments. Um, I think that's something that like a, a writer like Billy Wilder excels at is, you know, not just making these characters feel functional. She just, she doesn't feel like she's just the guy who, who gets, who gets Baxter a moment of happiness. She's, she's also in the same position. She's a lonely person seeking intimacy, seeking physical connection. Um, Yeah. So I, I like it. 
Yeah, I wonder how much of that is Billy Wilder versus IAL Diamond, his writing partner. I mean, it's hard to know where things end and begin as far as creative influence when you've got, you know, a writer-director duo like that. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how much is how much is uh Shirley MacLaine Oh, she's well. so good in this Lemon. movie. Yeah. She's great in this movie. Jack Lemon is really great in this movie. I just I think that Jack Lemon is a masterclass in looking pathetic. Yeah, he's definitely the beta 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 max. He's beta to the <laughs> max. Uh yeah, he's he's a very pathetic person in this movie but i don't i don't know too many jack lemon movies uh i haven't seen that many of his movies but i was texting sonia while i was watching this movie like man i gotta do i gotta do like a jack lemon week or something <laughs> like like this guy's so freaking good and like you said uh the filmmaking in this movie is really good um i do think it's hard to make a f- uh, uh, a f- a a a cinematically funny movie. And I don't think this movie is necessarily funny in a cinematic way, but it's extremely well-made cinematically and it's extremely funny. And so it's just an extremely well-made, funny cinematic movie. Um, The, you know, the, the cinema isn't inherently funny, but. Right. Right. It's hard. It's really hard to do. Um, and yeah, like you said, giving Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine the space to breathe with each other, let them develop that chemistry with each other. It's not overcut. It's not overdone. It's just let them breathe, let them connect. And by feeling their connection, oh, I just want them to be together. I want them to be happy. <laughs> well, that I mean, that that's exactly what a good romantic comedy makes you feel. Uh so uh, I gotta ask, who would you kill from this movie? Uh, I mean, I don't want to say one of the managers, but I have to say one of the managers, the one who busts in when he's got Shirley MacLaine in bed, and he's like, "Oh, you're the one who bad, so you're the one who finally bagged Kubelik, eh? And then he's the I one know who's that like, guy's awful. That that one specifically is the one who like screws Baxter over the most and it just like dude keep your mouth shut man like what a scumbag what oh my god he's, he's a total scumbag and I love the line uh more witty film noir kind of dialogue is you know like oh do you take lots of girls here and it's like no of course not I'm a married man I have the actual line written down somewhere I'm, like, <laughs> I'm a happily married man yeah <laughs> I, I think my favorite line has to be uh, when Shirley MacLaine looks in the mirror and says, uh, it makes me look the way I feel. Yeah, I wrote that line down, too. It's uh, her delivery of it is really good. And it, it, it hits at just the right moment. It's revealed mm-hmm. in just the right way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's broken. They're broken people. Ah, I love that. I love broken people. (laughs) I just want to break them over and over again. Um, I I would say for me, the person I would kill is uh, Mr. Sheldrake. But really, I would kill all of them. And (laughs) when you hear my horror, you will be justly satisfied. I'm uh, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm I'm very sure. Um, Yeah. I, I don't like to kill Mr. Sheldrake though because Fred McMurray, man, so smooth, so freaking smooth. When he's he great. First, when he first talks to Shirley MacLaine and he's just like, you know, he's he's like on cruise control. He's like, I got this, man. I'm gonna smooth talk you in just the right amount in just the right way. I'm gonna say all the right words. Oh, it's perfect. He's a machine. He's just an autom- automaton. And yeah, he's he's so incredibly slick. It he's he plays his part perfectly as far as, you know, what kind of guy could pull this this type of trick on uh Kubelik. 
because she's so savvy and cool. She, you know, it doesn't seem like she's the type of girl who could get pulled into this kind of thing, but he's just, he's a better manipulator. Yeah. But also she, cause that's like her past, right? It always, it's always the married guy who falls in love with her. She's like cursed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Remix time. How hard was it to create a horror out of this movie? Extremely hard. Really? Yeah. You know, I felt like there were so many places to go because, you know, they spent all that time in his apartment, but the previous There were so many places to go. They spent all the time in the apartment. (laughs) Well, no, I meant meant there were so many places to go horror-wise. Uh, and so I thought about, um, you know, what about a whole, you know, capture and torture type of story, but I already did that to Mr. and Mrs. Smith when I turned that into, um, a kidnapping story, uh, where Jeff tortures them. So I thought I can't do another story where Baxter torches Kubelik. Uh, I need to, you know, diversify, so uh, that was, for me, the only real challenge. But I feel like there were a lot of people you could have turned into killers. Yeah, I I don't know. I kind of wanted to stay away from the thrillery elements of, like, the Hitchcockian type, uh, Peeping Tom, Psycho. Right. thriller of like this guy who's a voyeur who lets people in or you know watches them and tricks them and seduces them i honestly figured if i was gonna go pretty realistic or try for like an actual thriller that anything i did probably wouldn't be as good as anything you did (laughs) so i just stop you it's your version you you're the only person who can write a brett style thriller well, so, but that's why I, that's why I had to like, I, I really wanted to throw in some kind of, you know, like unique twist on it or do some kind of, I can go first because okay, mine's very okay. short. Okay. Um, I, my rom-com is very short. So it sounds like we had yeah. the, uh, the opposite issues. Right. Or I mean the compatible issues. Um, so mine is going to start like, it's going to start on media Reyes. Which is, <laughs> which is to say, we're going to start in the apartment and it is a bloody mess. And so oh, we have to wow. figure out what happened. This is like a detective story. What happened in this apartment? I don't know. Our main character is going to be a crime scene photographer, right? So he's in the apartment and he's taking pictures and the, the very first thing, like the very opening shot of the movie I envision is like black and white with struggled breathing, you know, like, you know, very struggled breathing. And then like a flash of a camera. And then we see like, a you know, the, the light kicks on and we see a, like a guy who's really scarred or burned or maimed or disfigured. And then he takes his very last dying breath. And so as our main character walks around the apartment, he starts to notice things that are kind of out of place. And we get cops and tenants who are shady to both degrees. So our character is going to is going to have to piece together information and he's going to have to try to figure out he hears conflicting pieces of um alibi he he hears different officers talking about the importance of different evidence and he notices because he's done this a lot he notices a lot of things are out of place so like you know maybe there's a painting that maybe like a wall is splattered with with blood but the painting is not covered in blood or maybe there's like brown blood on a wall and then there's like one streak of red blood to imply that like all oh. of this blood is really old, but this one little streak is really new. And so it's just going to be a lot of like paranoia, confusion. The apartment is probably going to seem really big at first. 
as he's taking pictures of everything, like he's got to get the wide shots out of the way first, right? Before he moves into the close-ups. So the filmmaking can kind of um, uh, show that. And I'm thinking of someone like Nicholas Winding Refn or something, someone who's got like an ethereal dreamlike quality where it's a lot of like Ryan Gosling, just kind of looking at stuff. Yeah. He's really good at looking at things. Yeah. Uh, Drive in Blade Runner 2049 is basically just Ryan Gosling looking at stuff. Um, But, you know, then, then they're going to start to go into maybe like, informal interviews to actual interrogations and they can't let the people leave the apartment. So maybe we like move out into the stairwell, but as we leave the apartment, things just get really dark and even scarier. So it's almost like, even though the beginning of the movie, the apartment's scary because it's bloody mess. The camera work is going to make it. So anytime there's the idea of leaving, it gets even scarier. However, you know, maybe uh, maybe one of the the people who lives in the apartment jumps out of the window and it's like the 50th floor window. And then, you know, they're like, oh, send the send the paramedics down. But then the paramedics get down there and it's like there's no body here. And it's like, Whoa. oh, is Ryan Gosling going crazy? So, oh, did you ever see Stay? That movie no. Stay with Ryan Gosling? It's a pretty good little like indie thriller. Um, but yeah, Ryan Gosling pretty much goes crazy in that movie. So then this is where the movie, like in the third act is just like, we've spent so much time in this apartment. Now we're going to destroy the apartment. Right. So the guy gets taken out the, the night wraps up. It's a long night. He finally wraps up. He gets taken out. He goes to develop the photos. Maybe he notices something weird. And again, he's in the dark room. Dark room is scary. You know, it's like you see pictures and it's like, oh, I didn't notice that when I was in person. Now I want to go back and check it out. But the apartment's been destroyed. So now there's like a conspiracy, right? Like maybe maybe he tries to do a little bit of his own snooping, right? And he's like, oh, the landlord is really a shell company for this, you know, like uh, Louis Cipher. What was Angel Hearts, right? Like Lucifer. (laughs) Like (laughs) Mr. I am Devil. (laughs) The guy who is obviously Satan. Right. Uh, But basically, the end of the movie... I love Angel Heart, by the way. That movie is fun. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember (laughs) liking it. Um, Essentially, what's going to happen in the third act is our our photographer hero, the the Jack Lemmon guy who's going to be cursed and dragged to hell, the, the helpless, hopeless guy... He basically plasters his apartment in photos of the apartment. And As he basically one does. And he basically reconstructs reconstructs his own studio space to be the apartment, right? So he like blows up the photos and he creates an actual recreation of the apartment. But then as he does, he notices like in the photos things start to take shape and maybe he he can like he can oh. see He can see the murders happen in the photos, but then uh, I watched Ghosts semi-recently. So, like, in Ghosts, there's all these, like, demons that come out of the shadows and attack people at certain points. I'm thinking, like, demons come out of the photographs and, like, actually, like, attack him in some way. But it's, you know, it's a very... You're in danger! (laughs) it's, It's a very, like under the skin kind of way where we show it in a very art uh, college student way of like, you know, it's just a bunch of scary images and it's all like creepy atmosphere and they're haunting his dreams and his psyche. But essentially the demons are going to take over, disfigure him, maim him, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then the end of the movie, someone's going to come into the, into this guy's studio. And as he's on the floor dying, they're going to take a picture of him and then it's going to cut to black. And then we hear his last breath. So it like mirrors, it mirrors the beginning, Uh but also it's like in the beginning, he was taking a picture of a dead body in the apartment, but now he is the dead body, but he's not in the apartment, but he is in the apartment because he's surrounded by all these photos that's right. Yeah. You know who else could do a role like this? Patrick Wilson. 
the oh the guy God. from The Conjuring. This seems like the, the type of thing that he could do, looking and at things in- really confused and slowly losing his shit. Yeah, and Insidious. He was in the Insidious, the first two. Right. Of them. And he goes full crazy in Insidious too. Oh my <laughs> God, I love those movies. Yes, Patrick Wilson would knock it out of the park, man. I agree. So how about you? What um, I'm curious to know the direction you took your movie. So I'm going to be 100% transparent and confess that the plot of my movie is lifted wholesale from uh, Underworld USA, directed by Sam Fuller. Uh, Underworld USA is a really cool movie. I've mentioned it on this podcast before. Uh, yeah. so I, I would definitely recommend people check it out. But, uh, I thought, well, what if we did Underworld USA, but instead of a guy, it was a girl. So that's, that's what this is about. Uh, so New Year's Eve, Fran Kubelik's family runs a bar in New York City. She's just a kid but she has stayed up late so that she can wait for her father to return home. And as she's standing in the alley, she witnesses her father being beaten to death by five (laughs) gangsters. Right. (laughs) Uh, Fran swears revenge on the five men who killed her father, Kirkaby, Dovish, Eichelberger, Vanderhoff, and their boss, Sheldrake. So like Kill Bill, or Game of Thrones, we've got our guys. Death list five, baby. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Time jump. Now Fran is an adult, and she's already serving a sentence for shooting a guy in a robbery gone wrong, and she's just gotten a lead on uh, the five guys that killed her dad, uh, so she finds this other inmate, Miss Olson, who is in, she's on her deathbed in the prison's medical wing. And Olson admits to working for Sheldrake uh, and knowing about how they murdered Fran's dad. And Olson tells Fran that she will give her the addresses of all five men mm-hmm. if Fran will forgive Olson for the sin she committed to help Sheldrake. Fran tells her she's she will, but only after she gets the info She gets the info and then Fran takes a pillow and smothers Olsen, killing her without offering any of the forgiveness she promised. Fran is cold hearted. She's just she's just she's out for revenge. She is a female Hamlet. Uh, And so Fran gets out of jail. She goes back to her family's bar Uh, It's now run by her sister and brother-in-law. The family thinks, you know, Fran, you're crazy for wanting to get back at these guys because now they've become powerful figures in society and they use their society positions to cover up for their criminal enterprises. Uh, And each man is in charge of a different area. So Kirkaby does human trafficking. Dobich does gambling and loan sharking. Eichelberger is guns and weapons. Uh, Vanderhoff is drugs. And then Sheldrake is the head of them all, and he manages the relationships with the politicians that they blackmail and bribe. Uh, But they've got a very sophisticated criminal outfit. Uh, So Fran is going to go after each of these guys using their industry against them. So maybe she seduces Kirkaby in one of his clubs and murders him with a high heel in the champagne room or something. Uh, And maybe for Dobich, she can get into a private poker game and uh, stuff a stack of chips down his throat or something you know, something crazy. Uh, she'll feed Eichelberger to his pet tiger uh, and then make Vanderhoff overdose on drugs, but then put like the Narcan just out of reach. You right. know, something, something just, just completely devilish. So finally, all we have left is Sheldrake. Uh, and then Fran, she gets hired at Sheldrake's company as an elevator operator, but Sheldrake, 
uh, takes a private elevator to and from his office. So how is she going to get to him? Uh, so she starts to make friends with CC Baxter, this young executive who has a crush on her. Uh, and then she gets Baxter to use his executive elevator key to take her to Sheldrake's elevator. Uh, and then as they're going up to Sheldrake's private floor, she starts to have second thoughts about getting Baxter into this. You know, he's kind of, he's an innocent guy. He doesn't deserve yeah. this. Uh, and then that's when the elevator doors open. Fran sees Sheldrake with a machine gun. And then without thinking, Baxter covers Fran and is just riddled with bullets. Uh, no! And then <laughs> you fool, you damn fool. <laughs> uh, and then Sheldrake runs out of bullets and he's now struggling to reload uh, as Fran is telling Baxter he's a fool, but what she really means is I love you. Uh, and now, uh, you know, she's aware that being on this path of revenge is a lonely one and there are casualties. And the one person who had some kind of moral influence over her they're now dead. So now she's really going to go after Sheldrake as if she needed any more reason. Uh, and then, so she turns on Sheldrake. They fight through the penthouse. Uh, man, I just, I love a good close quarters fight scene. I feel like this is maybe the fifth or sixth one I've done. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> but, but it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun scene to, to put in there. Uh, so they're fighting. Uh, maybe he's doing his villain monologue as he's trying to shoot at her. And then finally, um, Fran uses her makeup mirror to spot Sheldrake, but then he shoots it out of her hand. Uh, but then she sweeps Sheldrake's leg and disarms him. He thinks that she's going to shoot him, but then she knocks him out with the butt of her gun. And then Sheldrake wakes up in the basement of the family bar with Fran, her sister, and her brother-in-law standing over him. And the family muses that they doubted Fran, but that they'll take justice as it has been served. Fran kicks Sheldrake first and says, that one is for Baxter. And then the family proceeds to kick him to death in the same way that they killed Fran's father. Yeah. The revenge is complete. Now, Underworld USA doesn't really end that way. I don't think Sam Fuller would write an ending like that. Um, so I'll, I'll, th I'll just float, throw in that clarification. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a corporate ladder. Oh, I like the name. Um, yeah, when I was watching The Apartment, I definitely laughed a few times because I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely a Shira movie. Because in a lot of your rom-coms, you'll have like death, like extreme death or depression or suicide type moments like this movie. Like sometimes you'll have this like light, fluffy rom-com and then introduce the horror element like unfiltered Dead body. <laughs> right and so i thought about that a couple times in this movie i was like oh this movie's so light and fun and fluffy and it's it's there's gonna be hijinks nope <laughs> if billy wilder can do it so can i i yeah. I admire a good tonal shift and I feel like movies need stakes and I think yeah. good romantic comedies too. You got to have some real stakes in there. Uh, it can't just be all cozy all the time. Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, uh, like not being as big a fan of the, the, the downward slope of this movie, I could have used a little bit more of the upward slope. But on the slide down, when they're playing cards together for the first time, they both act the shit out of that scene. <laughs> like, you feel you feel everything that they feel. They communicate everything so perfectly. The dialogue is written perfectly. The inflections are perfect. The delivery, the performance, everything about that scene, it just feels... It feels classic. It feels dramatic. It feels heavy. It feels weighty because you have all of this buildup to it. So yeah, their first card game. And then I like how they end it on the card game because they bonded. Like he's trying to cheer her up, but he like, we already talked about the movie, but yeah, I agree. Like, you know, it's, 
this movie doesn't just tonal shift for the sake of tonal shift. Like this movie really does gut punch you. Um, and it, it does, it feels like a good gut punch, but then it, you know, maybe it kind of stays a little bit longer than that. You know, I want that Pepto-Bismol just a little bit faster. That makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think part of the reason why I like unrequited love and, and movies like this or movies that I think, uh, make you, make you go through the discomfort and the suffering is that, uh, at least for me, I like to hurt myself for fun. I think that I, I like to get into a story and feel those emotions. And that's exactly what it feels like is saying, Hmm, are you sure you want to hurt yourself for fun today? And right. I say, yeah, totally. Yeah. This movie is a punishing kind of movie like that where it's, um, I can't remember the movie we just watched recently that I want to compare it to, but it is like, oh, you want this? You really want this? Okay. Mr. and Mrs. Smith is about punishment too. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, they, they do. They, they give you, they give you what you want. For sure. All right. Well, before we get into love bites, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we are on Instagram at the Necromancer Podcast. We are on Facebook and Twitter at Necromancer Pod. You can email us at necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us feedback, rate, review, subscribe. We love yeah. stuff like that. This is an episode on unrequited love, but not a podcast all about unrequited love. So if you show us some love, we promise to show you back some love. That's right. This is reciprocal. All right. So love bites. What do you got for us? Oh, man. I got a lovely little show called AP Bio on NBC oh. slash Peacock. Have you seen AP Bio? No, but I like uh, the actor who's also from Always Sunny. What's his name? Yeah, uh, Glenn Howerton. Yeah, I like Glenn Howerton. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I watched Community, and I like Community. Uh, and then just because Community ended, and then my streaming service auto-played AP Bio... I was like, all right, I guess I'm watching AP Bio now. And then I started watching the show and I was like, well, this is just going to be a dumb, average, stupid sitcom, right? Like it looks kind of like your dumb, average, stupid sitcom. But it's actually pretty funny, pretty quirky. Once you get into the first season, you know, things start to move and you're like, all right, I'm kind of digging it. I'm having fun with these characters and these hijinks. And then the second season is really strong. They canceled the second season. However, they brought it back for the streaming service, Peacock. I don't know if it's, I don't know if you have to be a member of Peacock or if it's free or I, I don't know how Peacock works, but they brought it back for Peacock. So this is probably going to be the last season. We'll see how well the season does and if they renew it. But because they knew this was going to be their last season or they guessed it, they kind of went in a full, wacky, committed, like, the third season just emphasizes all the parts of the show that I love. And it really is creative. It's really funny. It's super playful. The performances are really fun and silly. Uh, one of the guys who's on the show and who also wrote a few of the episodes, Charlie McCracken, he was one of my improv teachers in Chicago at IO. Oh. So it was like, hey, yeah, this guy's really funny. And he he deserves all of the... Uh, primetime sitcom love that that he got. Uh, AP Bio, yeah, I think is Patton Oswalt's in it, Glenn Howerton, a uh, bunch of other funny people are in it. It's just, it's just one of those shows that like Brooklyn Nine Nine. The first time I watched Brooklyn Nine Nine, I was like, all right, this is funny. But now every time I watch an episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine, I know the characters better. So I'm like, oh, it's genius, you know. Mm -hmm. So the more you watch AP bio, it's a show you can have on in the background after you've seen it. Like the more you're like, Oh yeah, that, of course that's what this character would do. Um, nice. Very good. Very fun. Very short too. Very bingeable. 
Nice. Yeah. How about you? What's your little love bite? So I'm not sure how many people know this, but the apartment is actually a remix too. Billy Wilder himself is no stranger to remixing movies. It is a remix of a very good movie called Brief Encounter. And there's a scene in Brief Encounter when the would-be couple goes to an apartment, a friend's apartment, to consummate their affair. Uh, and Billy Wilder, while watching this movie, thought, what about the schmuck who owns this apartment? <laughs> and then that is how the apartment, the the story of the apartment, uh, the inspiration came from Brief Encounter. But when I think about movies about unrequited love, about the most repressed of repressed desires of of torture so sweet the kind that you want to hurt yourself for fun with (laughs) brief encounter is one of those movies. Uh, And for being a melodrama, it's also very real. It's very witty and fun and has a humor and it's shorter than Lawrence of Arabia. So if you (laughs) want to watch a David lean movie, I'd say watch brief encounter first uh, and I think it's just a, a very well done movie about love that cannot be. All right. Yeah, I've definitely heard of it, but I've never seen it. So it's incredible. It's very well done. All right. Yeah. My ears It'll have break your up heart <laughs> now that I know the backstory to it. Yeah. What about the guy with the apartment? Yeah, that's, that's what Billy Wilder was thinking when he <laughs> saw that movie. All right. See you later, lovers. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.